0: week the bible as literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute but long enough to be substantive posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged if you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you.
1: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When coming across a word, a phrase, or a passage in the Bible, our natural tendency as modern disciples is to interrogate a text and then assign meaning to it. If we can pin a piece of text down, it's like having a part of the puzzle solved in our heads once and for all. The inconvenient idea that a text's value and usage can change That its meaning depends on where and how it is placed in a story troubles us because it thwarts any hope we have of gaining control over the author. We naturally prefer an assigned fixed meaning over context, functionality, and syntax because assigned meaning addresses a deep psychological insecurity. Humans desperately want to feel safe and in control. When we assign meaning to something, we become its maker and master. It settles in as part of our creation narrative, and we ascend in glory as the gods of our own illusions. Fast forward to the digital age, full of echo chambers and majority illusions. Why not rule in hell? if you hold the power to control its meaning. When we assign meaning, we imagine we are pinning something down in the text when, in fact, we are chasing ghosts of our own making. Mental abstractions disconnected from what is written on the page. So when you come across a familiar quote of John the Baptist, you must not ask, What does John mean? The correct question is, how do John's words function in this gospel, at this point in the canon? How were they used in previous books? Based on their usage here, what is the author saying in this gospel, in this situation, at this point in the New Testament? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos,
0: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 472 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the importance of hearing a specific passage, a parable, an excerpt of pericope, in function of the agenda of the biblical writer at hand. You cannot, for example, assume that Isaiah chapter 40 means what it means, just like you can't assume that a word means what it means. If you assign meaning to a word, which is exactly what Socrates tries to do when he goes off wandering about the world asking, what does this mean? You are creating something abstract and assigning it. That's not how scripture works. When you hear Isaiah you can try to understand how the words within the sentences and paragraphs of Isaiah chapter 40 function in context and in their syntactical order in the book of Isaiah. But when they are extracted from Isaiah and inserted in different gospel books, you have to do the work and submit to their context, syntax, and function within those books in order to understand how the gospel writer is making the excerpt from Isaiah chapter 40 functional in their story. Because each gospel writer is saying something and using the text from Isaiah chapter 40 to do so. If you generalize and say, this is what Isaiah chapter 40 means, and that's that, you're philosophizing. Because you've done what Socrates is trying to do, which is ask your questions and create something in abstraction. So when we hear Luke talking about, in the mouth of John the Baptist, the brood of vipers and laying the ax to the root and bearing fruit worthy of repentance, you have to hear him say these things on the lips of John the Baptist in the context of Luke's agenda. He is not addressing Israel. He is addressing a Gentile audience. Remember, this gospel is addressed to Theophilus, the lover of God in the Gentile church. This is the gospel that presents us with the Magnificat. The Magnificat, as you recall, is a mini-Deuteronomy. I put you in the land, and I can take you out. I filled you up with good things, and I can leave you empty. That is what Luke is trying to express to the Gentile church. That is the meaning of the Pauline gospel of grace. It is the anti-entitlement gospel. Now, in the land of Republicans and Democrats, don't twist it into your agenda. Because if you're on one side of the aisle complaining about people who feel entitled, you already have an entitlement mentality according to the gospel. You cannot say, why do those people have a sense of entitlement? You can't make that statement unless you feel entitled. If you are under judgment, as Mary is in the Magnificat, you don't speak. You simply say, be it done unto me, the slave of God, according to the word of the Lord. You're not entitled to anything, least of all to comment on the entitlement of your neighbor. It's a powerful message for an American audience, which is wrapped up in a knot about who's entitled to what, and who isn't entitled, and why other people feel entitled, and am I entitled? The whole message of Luke is the message of Deuteronomy. Nobody's entitled. And what you have, and even what you think you have, can be taken away, as the good book says, again and again. Eti ke eti. aidan wa aidan. So, Please don't fall in the trap of anti-Semitism, as so many have done over the centuries hearing this text, and assume that it's a critique of the Jewish community. It is not. It's a critique of the addressees.
0: There's so much there, Father, looking at the context of where these things happen and the way that we approach the texts, assuming we already know something, and that's always a trap because... What we bring to the text is always fair game for the text to strip away or break down. So as we read, we have to be fully aware of how we're reading this. Here's an example. John the Baptist is at the beginning of all three gospels we've done so far at the Bible as Literature podcast, Matthew, Mark, and now Luke. Do we know John already? no we don't we know the john of matthew we know the john of mark and now we're getting to know the john of luke are they the same no they're not the same the john of matthew comes after this long story of kingship and of jesus and his parents going down to egypt and mark john the baptist comes out of nowhere in Matthew, there is a judgment that John speaks that is very harsh, whereas you don't have that kind of harsh judgment. It's still judgment, but you don't have the same kind of harsh judgment at the beginning of Mark, of the words coming out of John's mouth. And here in Luke, it sounds much more like the Matthew John, but is it the same? No, because this John in Luke comes from the temple. Parents who are related to the priestly clans all the discussion so far has been about pregnancy of Elizabeth and Mary, about Zecharias not being able to speak. And Matthew was all about kingship, the long genealogy and kings. And here we've had repeated over and over, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the word of Moses and obedience to that word. We have so many differences so far that have appeared why would we assume then that John is going to be the exact same person? It doesn't make sense. So we have to come at this ready to have Luke strip away who we think John is before we can get there. Because like you said, Father, when it comes to the preordained categories that Facebook included in their algorithm of liberal versus conservative or nationalist versus internationalist or whatever. I don't know what's in the the algorithm. It doesn't take too much imagination because you can see the way that it bears fruit. Anytime you approach these things, anytime you approach your job, you approach your company, you approach your church, you approach your school, you approach your political party, you approach any institution, you have to be ready for that institution to challenge you and to strip away your assumptions about it because it holds all the cards. A company holds all the cards when it comes to the fate of their employees. They can do their best to create a good environment for their employees, but they're bound to one thing, which is to pay the amount of money that they set in the contract. There's nothing in the contract that says they have to make things nice, but they can. But if you assume that that's their job, it's going to challenge that assumption in sometimes painful ways. The Bible does the exact same thing. You might come with some kind of assumption about what is harsh, what is easy, what is good, what is bad, what is for me, what is against me, and it's going to do its best to challenge that. So as soon as you just assume you know who John is, you don't know. You can understand from the text of Matthew who Matthew's John is, who Mark's John is, who Luke's John is, and then once you get to that end, you can compare the three Johns. But you're not allowed to say, oh, well, we already know who John is. We read Matthew and Mark. No, now we have to learn again.
1: So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is the big switcheroo. If you're a Gentile hearing this and you had any sense... As is so common even today among Christians, if you listen carefully to the way Christians talk, even when they give lip service to equality and we all worship the same God, the premise of their theologies still draws a distinction fundamentally between themselves and the Jewish community. On some level, there is still a line in the sand. We are the replacements that is how people talk they believe that they are the new guys on the block they are the upgrade they are better and now they are here that is how everybody talks even if they don't admit it to themselves it is the premise of their theological ideology but that is not how scripture speaks Remember, this is a text that we are hearing on the heels of Isaiah chapter 40 where we learned that everybody is flattened out and only God stands out on the horizon. So you have Deuteronomy in your left ear and you have Isaiah chapter 40 in your right ear. On the one hand, you have Mary saying, you were filled with good things and you can be sent away empty. Remember Deuteronomy? You were in the land and you can be taken out. And in the other ear, you have Isaiah whispering, no one stands out but God, you're all the same. So everything can be taken away in an instant. Nobody's exclusive. Everybody's the same. Only God stands out. And now you hear John the Baptist finally say, you brood of vipers. So if you have been submitting to the gospel of Luke, there's no way you can weasel out of this and say, John is talking about the other tribe, the other people, the other religion, the other identity. This is about the Republicans, or this is about the Democrats, or this is about the conservatives, or the liberals, or the Russians, or the Ukrainians, or the Jews, or the Christians, or the whatevers. This is about you, whoever you are, O man, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and everybody wants to use Romans to lambast somebody else. The message of Romans chapter two is the only direction your finger should be pointing is back at you. So stop quoting Romans against other people. Whoever you are, oh man, you are the problem. You brood of vipers. How can it be any clearer than that, Rich?
0: I mean, John is painfully clear, and I think he's the worst church builder of anyone I've ever heard of. All of our churches love to borrow from the Gospel of John saying, come and see. I haven't heard of a church yet using their evangelization program, oh generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you coming to be baptized here? No, I I don't think any church planter has used that line. If they have, we haven't heard of them. And there's good reason why we haven't heard of them. You don't build institutions this way. You build the gospel this way. And I hate to say build the gospel. That sounds so terrible. But this is the only way to spread the seed of the gospel. So. What does this mean? Just a moment ago, we were talking about Isaiah 40, which is all the people are in captivity, and now the Lord is making a way so they can get from that captivity through the desert into the promised land. This is the salvation that God promises. And then you got this guy who's the one who's supposed to announce the salvation. He's like, You brood of vipers, who warned you about this? Why would he say that? The reason why he says that is because you can only take on salvation if you believe that you're in captivity. But if you understand that you're in captivity, then you have to know that you're serving the king of Babylon or Pharaoh. I don't know which one you're serving, O oh, brood of vipers listening to the Bible's literature podcast. Either the salvation applies to you because you're in captivity serving another master, or it doesn't apply to you because you're already serving God. Good for you. Congratulations. You don't need to be baptized then, like it's done. When a church wants to build their numbers, if they use this verse, it's not going to work because... Either you're following the Lord's will in the church you're at, or you're serving some other master. Let's talk about that master you're serving, because I'm afraid if you come to our church, you might just go back to that master. Mm, maybe we just won't baptize you. Go serve your other master. It seems like you like that other master a lot. Why don't we just leave you with that? Because I'm not sure if you're even interested. I, I mean, it, it won't work. So, John's work is very harsh because the word that he uses is against the institution that he was born and raised in. Don't forget, he's a child of the temple. Very different from John in the Gospel of Matthew. We don't hear that backstory in Matthew. There's no backstory in Mark. But here, John is a child of the temple in the heart of Jerusalem. And that is precisely to whom these words are addressed, to the heart of Jerusalem.
1: Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. This is the anti-entitlement teaching. Nobody gets to make a claim on identity. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your parentage is. None of it matters. It doesn't matter what your claim to fame is. There are no claims. God is the maker of all things. He filled you with good things. He can send you away empty. That is the meaning of this verse. Everything is in the palm of God's hand you are in the wilderness. Everything has been straightened, leveled. The only one who stands out is God, the good shepherd. Pimin okalos in the gospel of John. He is the only one who stands out on the horizon. Everybody else is the same. You are in the palm of his hand. So what are you? Whose son or daughter are you? What is your claim? How are you different than anyone else if everyone's on the same level before him? I mean, to hear this as being about the people of Israel is incorrect. Because technically, O Theophilus, you became sons by adoption. And now you're bragging about your adoption through Jesus Christ? We're now the true Israel, as I hear some Christians say, or the new Israel. I mean, the whole reason that you can claim that you were adopted as sons is because of the grace that was given to you through Jesus Christ, and you're boasting? It's precisely the fact that God can take anyone in or out, which is why you're in in the first place, and now you're forgetting that because he could put you in, he could take you out, That's how you have to hear verse 8.
0: Yeah, you can't forget. I mean, think about how this works logically. Repentance means turning back to the path. So, either you're walking the path correctly now, or you're not on the right path, okay? So, if you're walking on the right path, what do you want John to do to you? What's baptism for? You're already on the right path. You're already obedient to God. Baptism's not going to add anything. Now, if you're on the wrong path and you need to repent, bring forth your fruit of repentance and go through the baptism and we'll be good again. Now, if you say, well, I'm already a child of Abraham, then it raises the question, so are you on the right path then already? If you're on the right path already, what are you doing here? If you're not on the right path already, why are you claiming to be a child of Abraham? Because Abraham was faithful, so it doesn't work logically. What are you doing here? And this is the problem I have with conversion stories, because we were in a perfectly good church, we had the Bible, we had the preaching, we were just lacking liturgy, we were just lacking history, we were just lacking canon law, whatever you want to fill in that blank with. Okay, well... Canon law is not going to allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not what canon law is for. Canon law is so that the church can have good order as a human institution. It's based on Roman law. Liturgy is the way that we come together as a group and try not to forget scripture, but the point is scripture. If you already have scripture, you don't need liturgy. What's it gonna do for you? When we think that we're going to add on to our knowledge of scripture and our faithfulness to God, what are you building? you're building a straw house. so John the Baptist is correctly asking, I don't understand what you're doing here. You're just trying to puff yourselves up because you already think you're on the right path and you think you're going to add this one more baptism on to your checklist that you can check off. Sorry, that's not how it works.
1: Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There are no roots, humanly speaking, that one can establish. You don't grow roots, number one. We are rootless. And I love that example because as human beings, we like to think about setting roots, but there are no roots, number one. Number two, you can't be a mighty tree in the presence of God. You will be cut down nothing can be haughty in Isaiah in God's presence. Your only value is to bear fruit that reflects God's seed, which his instruction. The fruit worthy of repentance is the fruit that reflects what is already contained in God's seed. Here, we have to think in terms of the canonical syntax of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We have already heard the parable of the sower. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, we know that the seed does what the seed does. If fruit is worthy of repentance, it is fruit that reflects what the seed does which means you have submitted to the instruction of God. You have imitated the faith of Abraham. God can raise up children to Abraham, meaning if you acquiesce your will and your initiative and your agency and do what God desires in his instruction, then God's will, his instruction, will produce what it's going to produce. It will show you what to do that's what's happening here in the text. So the repentance is the correct action which is produced by the correct instruction, the correct seed.
0: The seed produces the fruit, and the fruit's worthy of repentance, meaning you came to the right path. I can tell you're on the right path because you're producing the right fruit. I know John's kind of mixing metaphors, he does that. You're walking a path, you're also producing fruit. Okay, we're just going to have to allow that to happen as people who are reading literature. Okay, that's fine. So, when he says God's gonna see what kind of fruit you have. You might be wondering, "Eh, am I already on the right path? Eh, maybe I'm not, maybe I need to turn to the path, maybe I'm not on the right path, whatever you think. He's now shifting that conversation to saying, you know, if you're not producing fruit while you're claiming that you're a child of Abraham, okay, fine, I don't know what claiming to be a child of Abraham is going to do for you if you're not producing good fruit, because your fruit is the basis of your judgment, not your claim. And producing more children of Abraham, he could do any time he wants, so I don't understand what is going to be an advantage to you there. But you need to be producing these sorts of fruit from the seed that comes from God. So the word, the instruction comes to you, as gift and you can produce the correct fruit or you can adulterate it with weeds in some parables or in a fire in other parables where it doesn't grow to where it needs to grow or you planted the wrong seed, bad seed, and now you've got a bramble bush instead of a tree, okay? So you are bound to produce the correct fruit as far as the outcome of your judgment so john shifts it to the outcomes of the judgment here's salvation you can come to the land but you got to make sure you're on the path but you want to know if you're on the path or not look at the fruits that you're producing and then you'll know and that's the beauty of it maybe you're already producing great fruit then you're on the path good for you you don't need salvation maybe you're producing bad fruit oops you do need salvation come here's the path that's what i'm here to do i'm here to announce to everybody there's a path you can take i'll baptize you will get you on your way. You'll hear the teaching and you'll produce the fruit. This is the open invitation to everybody. And I like the introduction, Father, how you talked about how Luke is opening this to the Jew and the Gentile. It's agnostic as to the genealogy or the father of the listener. And that is the one who is to listen and to decide if they need to repent or not. So now is your decision listening to Luke, and you decide, is it time to repent or not? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just
1: heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.
0: The Bible as literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.